and welcome to Rap Party with Prime Video. I'm Rihanna Dillon and with me is my nerd in residence, as he is every week, Michael Leader. Welcome. Oh, Rihanna, thank you so much. I'll never get tired of being introduced as your nerd in residence. <laughs> I'm so glad you like that. But really, we're both nerds, aren't we, with Rap Party? We are a little getting bit. Getting to talk to some of the people that usually don't get to talk to in this depth. Uh, this is one of my favourite things, to hear about the production and all the little bits and pieces and tidbits of information that you just don't get at a junket from an actor who goes in, does his lines, swans off again. This is all like the blood and the sweat and the tears before, during and after. We say it every episode, but these are the people that do the real work. Yes. So this week we are exploring the set. We are all about production design. So, Rihanna, in every episode, I like to ask you a question about our craft. So what do you think of when you hear of production design? I think my mind immediately splits in two and one half goes towards these amazing sci-fi films. Hmm. So I start thinking about films that just have to be made almost entirely from scratch, from somebody's imagination, which I think is incredibly impressive. So like Star Wars, I think like The Fifth Element, Hmm. because it is using people's imaginations. I find that incredibly exciting because it, it gives me windows into worlds that I would never get a chance to go into. It's giving me windows into other people's brains. Mm-hmm. But then the other half of my brain goes like World War Two, <laughs> And I just think about all the intricate bits that you might see in the war rooms in Darkest Hour or the dressing table. I think a lot about a bedroom, a female bedroom, and I think about all the lipsticks that will be on her dressing table and the compact that's in her handbag and all those tiny little bits of detail. So I sort of go, I suppose, from the massive to the minute, all in the space of you saying production design. Yeah, it really is the big picture ideas all the way down to the tiny period details that you can only see with a microscope, but you know they're there and they really make it authentic. A series I think of as an example of this is Mad Men, which over the course of the series really creates a visual encyclopedia of 1960s New York, which we'll be poring over for years and years. (laughs) I went to an exhibition at the Museum of the Moving Image in New York, which had recreations of the sets, (gasps) which is just absolutely amazing. I went to a Stanley Kubrick exhibition where it had all these really iconic pieces from all of his sets, like the Milk Bar and A Clockwork Orange, and you have those white, plastic, naked female shapes. And I just stood there and stared at it just for ages. It's amazing. Like, just all those little details that you will talk about with your friends years later. If you get the chance to go and see those things in the flesh, it's huge. But when I think about production design, I think of a certain franchise that almost over the course of a handful of films shows you the real breadth of what production design can Mm. bring and how it can be used. I think of the Batman films. I am your nerd in residence after all. (laughs) Of course. If you go back to Batman 1989, the Tim Burton one that kicked off this run of films through the 80s, 90s and 2000s, I think of Gotham City and the way that it was shown in all these films, the Mm -hmm. Tim Burton films, the Joel Schumacher, Christopher Nolan films, all the way up to Zack Snyder's Batman vs Superman and Justice League. In 1989, Anton First, the production designer on that film, made an incredible innovation in terms of creating Gotham City in Pinewood Studios. Really, when you actually go and see what the actual set was, it was only a few blocks. But on film... That was all at Pinewood? Yeah. Oh my goodness, I didn't know that. Really, they only had a couple of 
blocks of street right. that they just kept reusing oh, and shooting for both. And then miniatures as well, of course, mm-hmm. for flyovers. Mm-hmm. But it was a character in its own right, this sort of art deco, nightmarish New York with all of the towering skyscrapers. Really something, right? And that was all hand-built in a set atmosphere where really the imagination is the only boundaries. But then once you get to the 2000s, it splinters. Christopher Nolan is very much a location filmmaker and his Dark Knight trilogy... We know! (laughs) The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, Mm. that's Chicago, that's London, that's emulating New York rather than building from the ground up something completely wild and Mm. crazy and then he gets to Zack Snyder a couple of years later he is the big CGI filmmaker the visionary mind of Zack Snyder and his Gotham City is almost these CGI backdrops Mm -hmm. and that's basically the whole span of the history of production design right there (laughs) something that is created from you know actual practical effects built from the ground up miniatures sets something that is found in the everyday mm-hmm. or something that is then created on a computer that's incredible i love that you use batman to just tell me about the history of production design but really that's a way of just showing that production design is a little bit different to maybe costume design a, a craft we've already spoken about yeah we said on the costume design episode about how your brain immediately goes to frocks to mm-hmm. these beautiful period costume dramas and that's where the awards tend to go with production design it's a little bit different they seem to celebrate those wild visions of the kind you you just said it's the films like the shape of water Mm -hmm. films like once of a time in hollywood which is this very vibrant recreation of 1960s hollywood it's not just period detail it's something more there's this visual spectacle to it too i think guillermo del toro i mean shape of water is a beautiful film but i think pan's labyrinth Mm. which also won for production design it was just like another cut above that's what i mean about a window into this world this mind this is something that my imagination could not have dreamed up i think and then you get sort of films like wes anderson films which are they just look like cake toppings the whole time and all those past I think Emma is another one where I really appreciate the symmetry of Emma and just how much everything looks so pristine and perfect. And it is a world away from the dark greens and twisted imagery of Guillermo del Toro's brain. But just the sheer spectrum, I suppose, of what can be created and how minute you get to go as a production designer is something that I'm really interested in. And I suppose... What you don't tend to see winning awards is the type of production design which is very much in our everyday world, Mm -hmm. with a foot firmly placed within reality in the modern day. However, there was one film that was nominated at the Oscars earlier this year that is exactly that, and it's a beautifully designed film, and I wonder... Could you have a guess what it is? I think the only reason that I feel confident in my answer is because there's a poster of this film that has a cut through of a house and you can see all of the detail that has gone into building this set and it's Parasite, right? Oh, amazing, right? What a film. (laughs) So good. But also one that is so immaculately designed. Yes. I mean, they built that house, didn't they, I think? I loved watching the, the, the behind the scenes videos of how they built that house and also we get such specific different worlds within this same reality, as you say, because we have the rich poor divide. So this isn't sort of fantastical, this isn't about warping your imagination. This is the reality of two different 
different class systems. I think that's why the production design is so special in Parasite. Exactly. What a film. But this is all by way of introduction to our guest today, who really has done a bit of everything. And Mm. he's kind of had four or five careers in one. (laughs) So this is Bill Groom. Bill Groom, the legend, the production design legend. I mean, should we go through some of his heavy hitter credits i think have we got time <laughs> well i'd like take to start. us all night his first big gig when he moved to new york after working in theater was to be the set designer art director on saturday night live <laughs> what a great first job in any during respect. the golden years i imagine that would just keep you constantly on your toes their turnarounds must be very very quick mm-hmm. and it was off the back of that that he then went to work with penny marshall for a few years a great director. Mm -hmm. I think his first credit with her is art director on Awakenings, which is a a period film set in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. He was actually the art director for Anton First, the production designer, as I just mentioned, who worked on Batman. That was a strange pivot within Manson First's career to go from Batman to Awakenings, Awakenings. a bit more of a drama after the superhero movie. But then that starts a really great collaboration with Penny Marshall that I think reaches a peak with A League of Their Own, the baseball movie set in the 1940s. Is that Gina Davis, Madonna? Tom Hanks, There's No Crying in Baseball. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, he does Milk, which is all about Harvey Milk and his campaign. And so it's in San Francisco. He's very specific with his locations, isn't he? Because San Francisco, again, maybe this is something he learned from Anton first, but San Francisco is very much a huge presence in Milk. So then he went from doing San Francisco in the 60s and 70s to tackling New York in the 50s in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which he got nominated three times for for an Emmy. And it's about a stand-up comedian from a Jewish middle-class female perspective. And it is, as well as being hilarious, it really does an incredible job of showing New York from all walks of life in the 50s. And it's so overused, isn't it, that term? But it feels absolutely true here that New York is another character in this series. And I think that's something that Bill Groom is very, very clever, teasing out the personality of a location. He's absolutely one of the production designers of the golden age of TV that we're in right mm-hmm. now. Not just Mrs. Maisel, but before that he worked with Martin Scorsese on Boardwalk Empire, creating the world of 1920s Prohibition-era Atlantic City Incredible. mobsters. He won four Emmys in a row <gasps> or something on that one. Mm-hmm. Really just the guy to talk to about production design over the last 30, 40 years. And because he, as we've just said, is such a fantastic guest, we were so desperate to get him on this podcast, but it did mean that we lost a bit of the audio quality that we would normally like to have for an interview. But, I mean, it's Bill Groom. Like, we couldn't not speak to him. He's so busy. We had to sort of, like, catch him on the fly. So uh, do forgive us, but trust me, the content is absolutely worth it. This is Bill Groom. The first question, in this series, we're talking to costume designers, hair and makeup artists, mm-hmm. all sorts of people behind the scenes where almost in the name of their title, you know what they're working with. Hair and makeup, you know what they're doing. Whereas production design is a much more general term. Could you tell us where the production designer fits into all of that and what your responsibility is? My way of thinking about it is that I am responsible for the physical look of the production as opposed to the photographic look, for instance, which is the responsibility of the director of photography. So I'm creating the environments 
and the look of the show. And within that, who are your closest collaborators? Do you talk more to the people on the filming side, the cinematographer, etc., or are you working daily with costume, makeup, etc.? There's a collaboration with everyone at mm. some point or another in any production. Most of the time, I think I'm working with the director of photography and the visual effects department often. You've worked on such incredible projects throughout your career. Why do you pick these? I've noticed a sort of trend in more recent ones, especially going into New York through the ages. But what is the sort of first thing that you look for when you're coming onto a project and agree to do it? I think it's looking for a team that you can collaborate with. And it's starting with the director, the script. I mean, in the case of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I really loved the script. And I met with uh, Dan Palladino and Amy Sherman Palladino at their house in Brooklyn, which was just a few blocks away from me, which was great. We're actually neighbors, as it turns out. Um, And we had a great meeting. And since these were people that I I respected their work and I felt like I could work with, we had a great meeting and they thought so too. So they asked me to do the show and I'm so happy that they did. And uh, it's been a great show to work on. It's a beautiful show to watch. And as you say, the script is so, so funny and witty and sharp. But tell me about 50s New York. Why is that such an exciting setting to design? Because it does, it looks fabulous in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Well, one of the things that interested me about this is that we've seen the 50s done on screen so many times. It can be done in a kind of cliched way with the the diner, the soda fountain, all of the different elements of the 50s that we're all familiar with. But I thought it was kind of interesting to explore New York in the 50s because New York in the 50s was just as layered as it is today. And in Maisel, we see Midge and her parents living in a building that was built. We based it on a real building uh, on the Upper West Side. I think that building was built in 1919. And that was true in the 50s. I mean, so often the trap, I think, with the 50s is that so often we've seen it with everything just kind of frozen in the 50s without seeing much of the layering that goes before that. And this was an opportunity to see New York, and New York was very much that with, as I said, the same layering that you see today. Some of the buildings from the early 1800s are still existing in New York, but certainly... New York was exploding around the turn of the last century, and it was possible to see that in New York, I think, in this show. You've already touched on a little bit of this in the answer just then, but take us back to the beginning of your research process for a project. What are you starting with in terms of, you know the era, you know the location, maybe the city it's based in. What are you looking at and what are you looking for? Everything starts with the script, and we start with that and then find the research that sort of makes sense for the script and the characters, the story. And we'll use whatever sources we can get. I think that it's better to work from material of the period as opposed to material about the period. In other words, books that might be catalogs from the period, plumbing catalogs, all kinds of material that was written uh, and produced in the period. And then a lot of our research is photographic research. So we go to places like the Library of Congress. Some projects I've worked on, we've used photographs from individuals who have 
have stocks full of photographs from a particular period. Or I did one project called Vinyl. And I remember we found a woman who was starting a Soho Loft Museum, but she had collected lots of photographs and information about how the Loft movement in New York started. And we got research from her. Just wherever it, it we find it, we use it and incorporate that into the creation of the show. I find it really interesting that you were talking about the cliches that you wanted to avoid like the American diner, for example. What do you think is it about the era of the 50s that people find so nostalgic? You know, it always does feel like a luxury seeing 50s America on screen. Why is that, do you think? You know, I don't know exactly, except that we were coming out of World War II, which following the Depression, we'd had decades of unhappy times. And the 50s was a very hopeful period, I think, that that would never happen again. So there was hopefulness. Our director of photography, David Mullen, referred to it as an optimistic period, that he wanted to have the show have an optimistic look. And I think that's today, even I think people look back at that time and long for it. There were certainly a lot of things that were wrong with that period. The role of women uh, in our culture, that was something that we've moved beyond I'm a product of the 60s. I just turned 70 years old uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. So I remember the 60s quite well. You know, I was in college during the 60s, and that was a reaction to all the bad things that were going on in the 50s for people. But we seem to remember the 50s as this very kind of optimistic period, I think. And i have worked uh, with a couple of people who've told me that one guy in particular told me that his mother, when she watches Maisel, gets kind of weepy because she mm. grew up in the 50s on the Upper West Side and it just reminds her of how great her life was there. So that's the only thing I can think of as to why we love the 50s so much. That must be such a lovely thing for you to hear that you are able to transport someone in such a real way back to a, a period that they really lived in. Well, it makes me feel like we're doing something right <laughs> if, uh, if it touches someone. If it makes someone cry, yeah. I guess we're doing a good thing. But I didn't expect this show to be this much pleasure in creating this show, but it's that's certainly been true. That almost feeds into another question I wanted to ask, which is more of a general question, but definitely applies to Mrs. Maisel. How do you find the balance between production design that looks beautiful and production design that is historically accurate? Well, everything that we do has to tell the story. That's really the most important thing and certainly express the characters. I have to create an environment that makes sense for the characters in some way truthful. The research is very important because you learn a lot. You learn a lot about people. You learn about what their lives were like. You discover little gadgets and things that you had no idea existed and that reveals something about the way life was at that time. And that's the favorite part for me is the discovery of the story and getting to know the characters in the story. From the very beginning of the series, you differentiate very clearly between like the dingy club and then the upper class apartments. And the thing that really stands out, especially if you look at stills, is 
the sort of pastel tone of these apartments. And I sort of was thinking about actually that's become very trendy if you see like coffee shops now they're full of pastel colors and I was wondering why pastels represent opulence I suppose I really was just sort of following the color palette of the period I worked a few years ago with Gus Van Sant on a movie called Milk and I said to Gus he's such an interesting guy I love working with him and the first meeting we had on Milk I said something like well let's talk about the palette and he said, I don't want a palette. <laughs> and what he meant was he didn't want something controlled kind of from the outside in, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> and what then happened is that we did a, a camera test. And very often for that, I'll do some paint samples and maybe some walls behind bits of furniture and all of that. So in the camera test, we not only test wardrobe and makeup and hair and all of that, but also I'm looking at how certain things look on film and how the DP is seeing it and so on and so forth. So I set up a a really pretty elaborate background in a big office area that we had. It was huge in San Francisco. And I had all the elements there that we'd found, all the period furniture. And Gus walked in the front door and to his office past all of that. And I walked into his office after he'd had time to settle. And I said, so did you see what we're doing out there? And he said, yeah. Is there a pallet? He said, did I see a pallet? (laughs) I said, well, you know, the period had a pallet. And, and he said, okay, it's okay. I was like, all right, fine. fine." (laughs) We've gone on to work together since then. Um, it didn't get me fired, but there was a palette, but it wasn't anything I was imposing on the period or imposing on the story. It was something that grew out of the period, and every period has a palette, and Maisel has a palette, and all of those pastels are part of that. And as the show moves on into the 60s, Donna, the costume designer, whose work is brilliant, and David, our DP, We all have to think about what happened in culture from the 50s to the 60s, because it did. It changed very much. And I could get nerdy and technical about what happened to color. Uh, Please tell us what happened to color in the 60s. That's exactly what this podcast (laughs) is for. (laughs) I know I'm going back to my college days, but what I see in the 50s is a complementary color harmony. In other words, on the color wheel, The colors that are across from each other is what seem to be used the most in color harmonies and interiors and clothing and all of that. I mean, a red and a green or a light red, a pink, and a pale green would be used together. Those two colors are complements. The 60s had more of an analogous color harmony with the orange, which on the color wheel is next to the red, so it's yellow, orange, and red would be in the combination. That's what happened in the 60s. You see a lot of that. So we're going to have that in mind as we move forward. But I'll never convince Amy Palladino to give up pink. I know that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Does the 70s have a color palette, thinking of vinyl? Well, you know, it continued some of these oranges and olive greens and all of that sort of stuff. But the 70s was a very messy period. And 
when I was working on vinyl, I sort of realized that it was very similar to what I'd done experience working on Boardwalk Empire because the 20s, that decade was very messy too. You know, they say culture follows old rules, no rules, new rules. And the 70s and the 20s both were a decade of no rules. Everything was being experimented with and tried in the 20s, and the mix of colors was new at that point. But before that, you know, it it was a bit somber because of the war. And that seems to always happen. And then the Depression, you know, I did a movie called A League of Their Own and did some research about the Depression and following up to the war. And during the Depression, the colors were very kind of somber, and the neutrals were browns and earth tones. Once the war started, people had money all of a sudden. I mean, that's the thing about the war. People were working in defense plants, and women were working. And I read an article at the time about one family that was bringing in something like $1,500 a week to the family just because they were all working and working two jobs. That was unheard of. So the color palette quickly changed. And, you know, the neutrals were no longer the browns and the kind of earth tones, but they became a little purer. And the neutrals were more gray. And then you started to see some of the pastel colors that followed through into the 50s. So it's something that I'm not really qualified to talk about, but there certainly have been studies about how the economic climate of a culture and just the mood of a culture affects color and the color that we live with. You mentioned A League of Their Own there, and that's definitely one that I'd love to know more about. And that's a film that's endured in, in such a way that surprises me. I mean, I love the film, but it still seems to be one that uh, you know they've just remade. People talk about it still today. Could you tell us more about that film? And also, that's part of your relationship creatively with Penny Marshall as well. Is she similar to Gus Van Sant or the Paladinos? In regards to the fact that I've been lucky in my career to work with people who are really nice people, <laughs> and I hear the horror stories about difficult directors and producers and even actors who get in the way, I've never had that experience. So I feel very lucky being 70 years old to have never been in one of those situations. And Penny was great to work with. She could get very cranky, but she never really got that way with me. I only once, and I told her that I didn't appreciate it and I didn't deserve it. She quickly apologized, but we had a great working relationship. I was the art director and Anton first art director on Awakenings with uh, Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. And that was a great experience. So Penny knew me from that. And she offered A League of Their Own to Anton first But Anton was busy with a project he was going to produce and direct. And so he said to Penny, why don't you hire Bill? So she did. It took a little while, I think, to convince the studio that they could hand millions of dollars over to somebody who had never designed a movie before. But (laughs) with Anton's endorsement and Penny wanting me to do it, they said yes. So I was on the project through those times. But Penny and I got along really well. And it was... It was great fun to work on that show and challenging. It was big. You were asking about Penny Marshall. Penny is so funny. 
she was known to shoot so much film. She would just do take after take after take and shoot a million and a half feet of film. And so there was always pressure on her from the producers to work faster, shoot less, not do as many takes, move on. We shot in a church in Newark and they populated the pews with the members of Whitney Houston's mother's church. And Whitney was singing, the Georgia Mass Choir was singing, and it was, it became a church service. I mean, the people sitting in those pews were praising God and enjoying, and, and it just became a church service. And Penny started yelling, cut, on one of the numbers, and they ignored her. <laughs> And she yelled, cut again, and she yelled, cut again, and she yelled, cut again. <laughs> and the people were still singing and praying. And she walked back to Bob Greenhut, our producer, and she looked at him, and I'll do it in Penny's funny voice. She said, I can't stop Jesus. That I cannot do. <laughs> Which was just it's so typical of what her sense of humor was. So, yeah. So that was that was a great project in that regard. Ugh, amazing. I'm, I, this is one of the few days where I'm not wearing a comic book T-shirt. So just hearing the name Anton first makes me think of the production design he did for the Batman movie in 1989. Oh, and production design is such a broad church in terms of the scale. And you know, when you, when we're talking in sci-fi, fantasy, comic book territory, such almost, almost a different discipline. Do you see it as one great big discipline or is it almost a different industry almost when you work in those different ways? It certainly has its differences, but Anton was brilliant. And he was such a great guy to work with. He just had a great spirit about him and was incredibly talented, as we could all see with that Batman. And I saw some of his original sketches for Batman and they were just beautiful. Is there some sort of fundamental marker of quality for production design, even though they may be in completely different genres, completely different scales, that you as a production designer watching a film or TV show, you're looking for a specific quality that we as everyday film fans aren't noticing? I really, when I'm watching a movie or a TV show, I don't really notice the production design unless it's <laughs> really good or really bad. <laughs> Both of those things will get my attention. And once I graduated, I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly. Theater was all I'd been trained in, and that's all I had as a reference for going forward. And what I knew I wanted to do was get to New York. So I took a teaching job at the State University of Stony Brook, which was very near New York. And I wanted to be near enough to New York that I could start working there at some point in the theater. And one of the great designers in the American theater was Joe Melziner, who I happened to meet shortly after I came to New York. But when I was teaching my set design class, I decided the thing to do to inspire students was to write a quote from great set designers from the past. And I wrote quotes from everybody from Edward Gordon Craig to Joe Melziner. And I remember Joe Melziner's quote that I wrote on the board, the best a set designer can hope to be is a sturdy spoke in a well-set wheel. And one of them might've been Boris Aronson, one of the other great Broadway designers, 
this just came to me. One of them said, the scenery is not there to be noticed. The scenery is there to be forgotten. So that, I think, good production design just slides right into the story, helps tell the story, and fits perfectly and doesn't draw attention to itself. I try to get as close to the line of, you know, being theatrical or showy as I can without ever going over it. Once the audience leaves whistling the scenery, it's you've done a bad job. <laughs> um, so It's interesting that that comes up with editing as well and costume, I think, to a certain extent. But if you're trying to create a world, you're not just doing it for us, the audience, but also for the actors to feel like they are completely immersed in this character. If you've got Sean Penn being Harvey Milk, it's part of your job, right, to make sure that he feels as much more Harvey Milk in that moment than Sean Penn. How do you go about with the sort of minutiae, the everyday little bits that the audience don't necessarily get to see? Are you a big fan of including that? Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting that you bring up Sean Penn because when I was doing Milk, he first walked through the set. He said, I want all the drawers full. He didn't want, as the character, to open a drawer to get something out and only find that object that was scripted. He wanted to shuffle around in the drawer and find it. So we dressed everything, including all of the drawers in the desk. And I try always to do that. And I did a short panel with Tony Shalhoub a couple of months ago, and he brought that up. He said that it was so great working on our sets on Maisel because just before he steps in a door, He's not just standing in front of a flat that's open to the studio, that he's in a real environment that helps him get into character. You know, it's not false for him as a character, which I thought was interesting. And I took that as a nice compliment, especially coming from an actor. So I think actors appreciate that. Yes. We talk about researching a period from the colour palette to interior designs and so on, but it's a whole other unique job to be filling the drawers of Harvey Milk's office. You know, <laughs> how do you go about doing that if an actor needs that or if you want to achieve that attention to detail? Well, we just find the stuff and put it in the drawer <laughs> and it all has to be right. So it just becomes one of our tasks. Um, when people have asked me how a movie's different from a TV show or how one TV show is different from another TV show. My stock answer for that is that it's, the work is always the same. Mm -hmm. You decide what you need to do and then you do it. Mm. And the deciding is really, as I said earlier, the discovery aspect of any of these shows is the most fun for me. I love seeing it built. And many times we'll do a little one quarter inch scale model, which you can hold in your hand for a set. And then sometimes after having done that and all of the drawings and imagined it all, I'll step onto the set and suddenly you can feel like you're tiny standing in your own model. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've seen it before in your head. And then you walk into it and it's like, oh, this is like the model we did. Yes, this is right. So, Bill, talking about, you know, studying at college and just wanting to get to New York and now flash forward a few decades, in a few of your projects, you have defined what New York looks to many people who are watching Mrs. Maisel, watching vinyl. What's that like, being able to 
contribute to the screen collective dream of New York, having been a product of that yourself? Well, it's interesting. Next to my sofa here, I have a stack of books here I haven't seen in years. And one of them, I'm looking at it now, it's called The Celluloid Skyline. And I looked in the back to see if my <laughs> was in there. And it is for doing a movie. It was called It Could Happen to You with Bridget Fonda. And it took place in a New York City diner. And we built the diner and the building next to it, adjacent to it, on an empty lot in New York. And I chose to do a building that would have been built around 1920. There are still a few of them scattered around New York, and one or two have been torn down. But I just thought it was such a great little element in the New York cityscape. And so we built it in that style and put the interior inside so you could shoot outside and inside. So that captured a little bit of the streetscape of New York that is disappearing a little bit. I, I used to always say that New York would never change. It was too vast, but it is changing. I mean, it's becoming a lot shinier and a lot more developed than it was at that point. And I wanted to just capture a little bit of what I remembered the first time I came to New York. And so that's that's a long answer to your question. But. <laughs> no, and also, I don't know how this goes in, in terms of the chronology of it all, but one of your first key art director credits is Saturday Night Live, literally live from New York at Saturday oh, yeah. Night. Please tell us about the experience of working on Saturday Night Live in the early mid-80s. Well, it was amazing. I had a friend who knew the staff at Saturday Night Live, and we had worked together. She was a costume designer. And when I was ready to leave teaching, there was a point when I just felt like I had to leave. I started teaching right out of college, and I thought the value I had was that I was very close to the age of students. And <laughs> so I could relate to them in some way. But I felt that I really needed to get into New York and start doing what I was talking about in the classroom. And so I had worked in Summerstock with this one friend, and she recommended me to Eugene Lee, who she had worked with in the past. And I met with them and got the job at Saturday Night Live, and I was so thrilled. So I was there with the original cast, wow. and then through the season with Gene Domanian as the producer and the years that followed, it was an amazing experience in terms of the speed of it and the needing to turn that work out so quickly. We would get the scripts on Wednesday and be shooting live on Saturday night with all of the sets built and painted and dressed. And that was, it was quite a challenge to do. So I learned to work really fast. And that's been helpful over the years, very helpful. When we've been talking about production design throughout this conversation, one thing that maybe unites all of these films and series we've been talking about, many of them anyway, is this thing that, I mean, Rihanna will probably stare at me for saying this, it's become a bit of a cliche in terms of criticism, but talk about a location or an area, the production design as a character in its own right. <laughs> Gotham City, with Anton First's hands, is a character in its own right. right. Or even New York and Atlantic City and Boardwalk <laughs> Empire, a character in its own right. What do you think about that as somebody who said that really you're serving the script and the characters? Well, that's something that you made a reference to early on, the differences in the parts of the city we see. And you certainly see that in the first season maybe more than, than as we move along because it becomes more about Mitch's career and 
some of the venues she's playing and all of that. But in the first season, certainly, we saw her neighborhood on the Upper West Side and the neighborhood she'd grown up in. We saw Joel's sort of midtown look because he was working for the company that had offices there. We had the downtown look, which was very different, uh, the village. And Amy did this kind of wonderful shot of we drove through these streets of New York and there were different little vignettes that we were seeing outside the window. Each one kind of expressed a different part of New York. And that still exists a bit in New York. You know, there's still the Lower East Side and the East Village and all of that. Sadly, it's all very expensive to live in these days. <laughs> when I first came to New York, you could get a cheap apartment in the East Village and be an artist. That's absolutely perfect. So we are creating this big fictional rap party. All of our guests are invited naturally. And so <laughs> we're asking every guest at this fictional rap party, who, this could be an actual person or it could be or a role within the crew, who would you want to go up to and have a chat with in the way that we've just had a chat with you? Wow, that's that's so hard to answer. I mean, a thought comes to mind, but it's. I wanted to have a chat again one more time with Anton first. I think, you know, we became very good friends working on that project. He was kind of severely bipolar, which I certainly didn't know when we were working together, and nobody really did. And he was just an incredibly enthusiastic person to work with. And I was going out to LA to visit him. And before I got there, he died. So I never got to talk to him again. And that's a kind of morbid answer to your question. But that's, that's what comes to mind. I'd love to speak to Anton again. He was so inspirational and such a lovely guy. So yeah. That's a really lovely answer. You can raise a glass to him. Exactly. Then we're not going to argue yeah. with that. You know, he wasn't fancy at all, right? Mm-hmm. He was like, um, wore a leather jacket and had long sort of greasy hair and he was like an old rocker. He was just great. He was just a great person, I think. And uh, he loved New York, yeah. loved it. And he was just talking about how great it was. And I said, you know, we've lost so much in New York at that point, you know, and he said, oh, but there's so much here. <laughs> Bill Groom, thank you so much for joining us at the Rap Party. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Oh, it's great. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you to the marvellous Bill Groom for talking with us today. Gosh, what a privilege to hear about Anton first from someone who worked with him as a lifelong Batman comic book and movie uh, fan that really was something that's really 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 lovely the way that he spoke about Anton also like just the stuff that he was saying about Sean Penn in Milk and like the amount of detail that he wanted and needed on set I think that's that's going to be a bit of a dream hasn't it for a production designer filling out those those drawers and wardrobes yeah, exactly very cool and as always we have a reading and watching list for anyone who wants to read and watch along on prime video you can watch the marvelous mrs Maisel and awakenings and loads of bill's work is also available to rent boardwalk empire a league of their own milk batman vinyl and if you're interested in the way that bill was talking about the colors of history mm-hmm. on audible you can listen to the secret life of color by cassia st Clair. and i feel like we've started a book club 
inadvertently with this. Celluloid Skyline was the book that Bill was flipping through and found his own work within it. So that was by James Saunders. So look that one up. I'm definitely looking that one up. I know, up. it sounded great. And we're off now to swing from the 1950s chandeliers that I will have pilfered from Mrs. Maisel sets that Bill Green would have so deliberately sourced from incredible vintage shops over the years. And I'll be getting out the magnifying glass looking for all the details that uh, we wouldn't spot otherwise. Rap Party with Prime Video is a Little Dot Studios production for Prime Video. The show is hosted by Rihanna Dillon and Michael Leader. It is produced by Annie Hughes, Jake Cunningham and Harold McShiel with additional research from Nicole Davis. Our original music is by Axel Cacoutier. And we're edited by Content is Queen. And our artwork is by Sandra Boucher and Sam Mason. If you've enjoyed the show, you can subscribe to us on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you at the party. (laughs) 